This morning, I want to finish for you a story of confrontation and consolation, one that we've been listening to for all of Advent, and that story is the story of Jonah. If you haven't heard this or don't know this or you haven't been with us, you may be a little disoriented. Let me just assure you, you will be oriented by the time I am done. Listen to what he says. Listen to what happens to Jonah towards the end of his story after something that happens in Nineveh. When God saw what they had done, the Ninevites, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he didn't do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. He was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you're a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. For it's better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now, the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. And so Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And Jonah asked that he might die, and said, it's better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you didn't labor, Nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who don't know their right hand from their left, and also a lot of cattle? And there the story ends. And you're thinking, wait a minute, that's it? It ends there? It ends with God asking Jonah a question. It ends without any resolution. Yep. Sure enough. That's it. And perhaps the only thing more baffling about this ending, which is not really an ending, is the way Jonah is responding in that whole chapter 4. Twice he says, I am angry enough to die. What? Can I have a little context? What's going on? You have to go back to the beginning. You have to recap where Jonah has been. Jonah, in chapter 1, has been commissioned by God to go to Nineveh. Nineveh is a great city of the then Assyrian Empire. Before there was the ugly American, there was the ugly Assyrian. The Assyrians in the 8th century were the big guy on the block. And in the 8th century, they overrun Israel's borders They occupy Israel's territory. They terrorize Israel's people. And in the end, they subjugate that whole culture until it has to pay an annual tribute just to live. And God is telling Jonah, go there. And why is he telling them to go there? Is it to spit on the ground? Is it to seethe before their eyes? Is it to demean them before everyone? No. God tells Jonah to go warn Nineveh of its way. That the way it is continued in, the violence that it's in its hand, 
it will mean its own destruction. And so God tells Jonah to warn them to cease and desist that they might turn and live. And if you want to get a little bit of a context to what that really meant, if you can imagine, by way of analogy, as we have during this series, if you can imagine God telling a black man to go to a white supremacist rally and show up and sit down and pay your entry fee and then don't scream at them, don't demean them, don't ostracize them, don't call for their destruction, go and warn them. Go and warn them that they have adopted and reckoned and embraced a way of being that will be their own demise, a demise that begins with the shriveling of their own heart. In other words, go and warn them as a demonstration of regard for them. That's, in essence, what God has asked Jonah to do in Nineveh. And you know what Jonah says? No, thank you. Do you know what they've done to us? Do you know what they do behind closed doors? You want me to go there? I won't have it. And he flees. He goes in the opposite direction. He gets on a boat. And in time, God hurls a storm at that boat because he doesn't take no for an answer. And by the end of Jonah's boat trip, he's been hurled overboard, ostensibly to die by drowning. But no, God intervenes. God sees to his deliverance by being swallowed by a fish. Are you kidding me? Yes, a fish. And there, inside this great fish, whatever it was, he gets a little bit of illumination. A little bit of learning comes his way, such that he begins to to relish God's kindness, relish God's deliverance, relish God's supremacy. And when that penny drops, when that light flicks on, something's clicked for Jonah, such that God says, all right, lesson learned, and he has him puked out of a whale. And there on dry land, God says to Jonah, let's try this again. Go to Nineveh, like I said. And this time Jonah says, I'll go. And so he does. And there he goes. And he walks a day into the city and warns them, you are destined for destruction if you don't change. And guess what? Nineveh listens. They are persuaded. They are contrite. They abase themselves. And they say, we get it. And they turn from their way. And you would think that if you're Jonah, you're thinking to yourself, win-win! Not only did I walk into this unwelcome, hostile place and they not kill me, they actually listened to my message and turned. But what does Jonah do? How does Jonah respond? Twice he says, I would rather die than for this to be true. I am so angry enough to die that they have actually listened and turned from their way and now, God, you have relented from your disaster promise of judgment. Why is he angry? Why, why would he respond in that way? Do you know what ancient thinkers ascribe to Jonah? Do you know what they say he is afflicted with, what he is suffering from? It is the vice of sloth. Now, sloth like, you know, uh, Flash and Zootopia? No. Um, do you mean like sloth like sitting in the Barca lounger with Cheetos on your fingers while you play Halo 4 for six hours a day every day of Christmas vacation? Like sloth like that? No. You can be just as busy as anyone and still engage in sloth. No, sloth from the perspective of ancient tradition is this. Sloth is called the resistance to the demands of love. 
It's not simply doing or not doing something. It's actually resisting the opportunity to demonstrate and manifest love wherever there is opportunity to show it and instead doing something else. That is how the ancients demonstrated or defined sloth. And that is what Jonah is guilty of. God has told him to go to a place of unwelcome and to bring his welcome, which is at bottom an expression of love. And Jonah says, I won't do it! And do you know why he is resistant to the demands of love? You heard him say it there in the second verse of the passage. He says to God, I knew, I knew you were a God who would forgive and show mercy and be slow to anchor and relent from your disaster. I knew you were going to do that. And that is not Jonah cherishing God for his character. That is Jonah chastising him for his character. And we think to ourselves, what a nut. But you know what? You and I are guilty of it. Because there are people under your nose, under your very nose, whom you refuse and resist to contribute to the demands of love that they require. And there are people in your world who you despise, whose positions you have ultimate disagreement with, but you have used that as a pretext for not even showing them the slightest kindness and instead disparaging them. Because that's what's blowing up all over the world. Cue Twitter and see how well that's all working. It's resistance to the demands of love born of a resentment to the depths of love. That's Jonah's story. That's your story. That's my story. And the question is, what hope has Jonah if you're that resistant to the demands of love? Sometimes you need a story that is something like an intervention. Hey, honey, what are you doing backstage? I thought you'd be out in the audience. I thought I'd just hang out back here and you know, maybe we could cut out early after your Christmas past scene. I'm the ghost of Christmas present, and I have a curtain call, right? Yeah, but this is the umpteenth performance for a bunch of second graders. Who's going to know? Sure, we could do that. Or we could go to the cast party tonight, remember? Cookies, eggnog, spirits, ooh. Oh, do we have to go? I think I've worked for it, don't you? Of course you have. I think you could find a ride. I just want to go home. And do what? Nothing. As usual. What's that supposed to mean? It means that if you're not at work, you're at home on that stupid Xbox. And the minute that I want to do anything fun at all, you're pretty cranky about it. Well, maybe I wouldn't be so cranky if those things didn't take up all of your time. Why are you picking a fight with me right before I have to go on stage? I just thought maybe it would be nice to have some time to hang out on Christmas. There's my cue. I have to go. Ugh! Hey, Joe. Hey, Mike. Merry Christmas. Yeah, you too. Why so grim? Get it? (laughs) I'm asking you, why so grim? Nothing. Doesn't seem like nothing. It's just Sally. She's so... You know... What? It's a married thing. Yeah, I hear that can be tough. It wouldn't be so tough if every minute of her time wasn't taken up. I mean, I feel like I'm supposed to be on her calendar in order to have dinner with my wife. 
And then she even gets mad at me because I don't want to do something all the time. Yeah, busy can be a bad thing. Thank you. And then she acts like it's a sin that I don't have something going on every waking second. Well, Gosh, she's got some nerve. How long have you two been married? What? Oh, uh, nine years. That's a pretty long time. Yeah, too long if you ask me. We made it for 16 years. Well, now you don't have somebody standing over you with a stopwatch when you're just wanting to relax and watch some TV. Yeah. Where did you meet her? We worked together at FedEx. Was it love at first sight? <laughs> no. That stuff doesn't exist. Oh, yes, it does. Let me tell you, I've experienced it. Oh. I know it exists. Come on. Dead serious. <laughs> really? Now, is this the gal that left after 16 years? Catherine, yes. <laughs> Love at first sight, huh? Yep. It's right there, right there in that bathroom. We, uh... <clears throat> Joe, that's enough. You don't... It's okay, Mike. I'm a plumber. <laughs> now let me tell you, that thing was really stopped up. <laughs> okay. I, that first day didn't smell like roses, but after that, everything didn't stink too much. We had a pretty good run at it. So what happened? She, uh... She went to be with Jesus 13 years ago. Joe, I'm, man, I'm so sorry. Thanks, Mike. I miss her so much every day. She was so full of life. She was like the Energizer Bunny. She was always into everything. Sounds like Sally. Yeah, she does favor her a little bit. Catherine was a middle school teacher. She was up early and come home late and always volunteering for everything coming down the pike. I could never keep up with her. Yeah, I can relate. I almost lost her over that. Can you imagine? I mean, now I know what it's like to live without her. And to think that I almost lost what years we had over that. It finally dawned on me that she didn't need me to keep up. She just needed me to remind her that I loved her. And that I saw her. And after she got sick, she needed me to take care of her. It wasn't the way I imagined that it was supposed to be. I was angry at God for for being the grim reaper and taking away what was mine. But she reminded me of who I was and what I was made to do. Be a plumber? <laughs> yeah, and uh, and to rise up to the demands of love. The demands of love? 
Love always asks something of you. I wasn't always good at it, but man, it was so worth it. I know. I'd give anything if I could just have five more minutes with her. Actually, that's a line from uh, (laughs) the ghost of Christmas past. They get all the good lines. I just do the creepy pointing. (laughs) Man, thanks for sharing your story, Joe. I appreciate it. Well, I guess I better get in place. Looks like Sally's almost finished reminding Scrooge of the demands of love. I see a vacant seat in the poor chimney corner and a crutch without its owner carefully preserved. If these shadows of the future remain unaltered, Tiny Tim will die. Hi. Hi. You did a great job with that last line. Thank you. I thought you'd be long gone by now. Yeah, me too. Then I started talking to the Grim Reaper, and he was telling me about his wife dying. Joe's a good guy. Yeah, he really is. And he reminded me of a few things. Look, I'm really sorry. About what? About not recognizing the demands of love that are on me. I'm confused. It's okay. Let's go to the cast party. I love you. I love you too. Let's go home. It takes death incarnate to teach Mike a truth, a truth that he had lost, a truth that he had lost about the luster and brilliance of love, the privilege of love. Because he had failed to fulfill it, he needed someone to intervene in his life to restore to him a sense of that brilliance. He needed a story. God is for Jonah what the grim reaper was for Mike, one who was to restore to him a sense of the brilliance of love and of the desire and the mandate to enter into its demands. The only thing more astonishing about in this story than Jonah's self-absorption is the lengths to which God goes to look past that to bring about a different outcome and a different heart from Jonah. Do you get it? He invited Jonah into a work and even when Jonah gives him the stiff arm, he intervenes so that Jonah might learn and come to depend and come to see it. And even when Jonah begins to click and something begins to change in him, even when Jonah fails to see it and begins to act more like a grump than one who's been commissioned by God, it is God who reasons, who reasons with Jonah to see that he's caring too little for the things he ought to care more for and cares too much for the things he cares too much about. And that is love. And for those of you who are here, maybe in defiance of anything else, but because you think that maybe God is just one big nasty brute, I defy you. 
God is one to bring about something in Jonah that can only be understood as love. And therefore, I think what the story of Jonah is out to teach us is this. To enter into the demands of love, but not as a condition of his love. To enter into the demands of love, but not as a condition of God's love. God didn't place conditions on Jonah. He loved him anyway. And never has that truth been told more wondrously than in the truth that came in a trough. The one who was born into a manger, who came to a place of unwelcome and died as one who was hated. That's his story. And he entered into the man's of love and there was no condition he placed on us that we might receive that love. That truth is his truth. And that truth is set before us. And that truth we revel in this day. This Christmas Eve day. About 30 years ago or 40 years ago, there's a named guy named Eden Abes. Probably a first incarnation of somebody part of the counterculture. He lived in a tent beneath the L in Hollywood. He wrote music. And he wrote a song that's been covered from everywhere, from everyone, from Tony Bennett to Lady Gaga to David Bowie. And that song is called Nature Boy. You've probably heard it. It's short. It's beautiful. It says, There was a boy, a very strange enchanted boy, who traveled, who covered, who traveled very far and wide, who was a little shy and sad of eye, but very wise was he. And then one day, a magic day, he passed my way. And while he spoke of many things, fools and kings, this he said to me, the greatest thing you'll ever learn is just to love and be loved in return. Jonah had to cross land and sea that he might learn that truth. But there was one who had to make an even further passage who was ridiculed as a fool and yet born as a king, but he came to teach us one truth, that the greatest thing you and I will ever learn is just to love and be loved in return. And he showed it. What does Rose say to Finn near the end of The Last Jedi? The only way we're going to get through, man, is if not by killing what we hate, but by saving what we love. That's a line. And that's a story. But you know what a greater story is? The one who came to save what he loved by entered into a world that was unwelcoming and then dying for those who were his enemies. That's a story. And that's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. What you and I are about to do is to sing and to hear that story. And because it is so familiar to us, what we're about to do is rather dangerous. Because you will be tempted to enter into a mode of nostalgia and over-familiarity. And that's why I would ask you to press against that inclination and instead, listen. Listen for two things. Listen for how He has come for us and not place conditions of love upon us. But then listen for how in recognizing that He places no conditions upon us with His love, that in that, it frees us to fulfill the demands of love. That's Christmas. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.